to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello and welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, the Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. I'm talking today about the research and development tax incentive, the RDTI. It's been very much in the news the last couple of years after a remaking of that program that's still to get through the parliament. We're talking to Ross Anderson, the chief technologist at Avado, Avado Clinical Software, and to Marty Galvin, whose career path I'll go through in, in just a moment. Now, Ross Anderson, interesting, he has been a user of the RDTI for many years and became frustrated, culminating in an article that we wrote in which he was saying that uh, it had become too costly and carried too much risk for Australian software companies. Marty Galvin founded and ran Hostworks for 10 years in what I guess is back in the day, quite some time ago now. He's also president and CEO of Virtual Art and a principal advisor at R&D Certainty. We're talking to him today on the back of his involvement with Innovation and Science Australia, where between 2015 and 2018, he was a member of the R&D Incentives Committee, when much of the redesign work on the R&D Tax Incentive took place. He's currently the chair of the Innovation Investment Committee, basically sort of DC Committee of Innovation and Science Australia. Welcome, both of you. James. Okay. I'm going to start with Ross. So, Ross, can you just talk it through us? How had Avado used the tax incentive? How was it helpful? How did it become frustrating? And how did it culminate in you kind of pulling back? Okay. I sh- I should uh, have, sorry, just one thing I should have mentioned before that Marty and Ross have been in conversation in the past couple of weeks, swapping notes, and that's where this conversation is going. We're trying to understand the definitions of software under the R&D tax incentive and how software can become eligible for that program. So sorry, Ross, I interrupted. Take it away. That's perfectly fine. Back in about 2011, 2012, we identified that a number of bits of technology that we were working on were eligible to become, we could patent them, but they needed some further research to be done on them. And so we looked at that. And at that stage, we looked around to see if there was any grants or other things that could be used and encountered the RDTI program. We looked at it. We'd been working with one of the consultants on other government programs, so we sort of teed it up with that person and then looked at that, looked at the guidelines as they were articulated at the stage. And we then used that for probably four or five years. In that process, our entire software development process is ISO 9000 based. So we built it into it as a research project where we posed a particular question of how could you do such and such. We then looked at, developed a process for fixing that up or exploring it and then implementing it into the software. So we went through that process and it worked quite well. We never had any questions from Oz industry regarding the scope or the approach that we were doing it. In fact, we integrated the whole concept of the R&D into our actual software development practice. So even though we had projects that may not be eligible for RDTI, we inserted the concept of the step into that as a means of encouragement for our developers and people we're working with. And we were doing some work in conjunction with a couple of the universities and using some of their expertise as part of that as well. Then after Airtasker 
hit the news where one of their projects had been bounced by the government and that they were then going through a process of challenging that. And the consultant we're using at the time said, yes, there has been some re-examination of the definitions. We need to have another look at this. And at about the same time, one of our colleagues at another company got a tax audit from somebody who came in and they were doing R&D, although, and a little bit about RDTI. And the tax auditor that came in had really no understanding of research and development, what it meant, how it worked, and was in the process of excluding a lot of what they had had passed through from Oz industry. Alerted to that as the supposedly new approach, we at a board level sat down and looked at that, looked at the business, looked at the potential drawback provisions that government were saying they were entitled to do, and decided that for a company of our size, where we've only five people in the business, we couldn't afford the potential of having to pay back what could be tens of thousands of dollars because of a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding, having already proposed the research plan to Oz Industries, got the number, they've approved it and gone through the process and built up all the records to go with it, we felt that that was just a risk we couldn't afford to do as a business. And that's basically the essence of it. And it was then from that that the conversation then came to yourself and then to Marty. Okay, so just before I bring Marty in, I just want to set the scene. So these changes, I think, were announced in the 2018 budget. Would have been 16, 17. There was a re-examination or a review of some of the definitions. And then the 17, 18 legislative changes were coming through as well. So we might... So it's all in that period. We'll, we'll go to, to Marty in a sec just to confirm that. But right now, there's a huge campaign underway. We know that a bunch of Australian software companies have got together last Friday and written an open letter to the Prime Minister. This is Atlassian and Canva and Freelancer and a bunch of others. And we know that the industry group, the lobby startup Oz, pursuing this probably as hard as anything that they've ever pursued. So just before we get into the case that Ross has put forward, Marty, can this just be a miscommunication? You worked on the development, the design of some of these changes. Is this just miscommunication of people not understanding how to claim this? The short answer is yes, but it goes a little bit deeper than that. If you look at sort of why there is an R&D tax incentive, the reason is because business expenditure on R&D is really good for the economy. The OECD identified that in the 1970s, and so they went as economists to the scientists and said, well, look, how do you describe what you do? So they then wrote down that, and that became their definition for measuring R&D internationally. Then in the 80s, when Australia and other countries first decided that they wanted to provide incentives for this, they said, well, let's go get the lawyers to ask the economists how we should define this. You're a long way from the scientists in terms of deciding what R&D actually is. And what happens here is that the definition of R&D as in the legislation is rarely done in the development of software. But my key point is it absolutely can be. So what the definition needs is that you need some activity, what the legislation calls a core activity, that needs to be conducted for the purpose of generating new knowledge and it needs to be experimental. You need to use the scientific method. And if you don't have both of those two things, then it doesn't matter what everything else you have that is not, uh, not eligible. But if you do have those two things, however small, then everything that supports that 
then becomes eligible. And so essentially, if you can conduct a small experiment and generate some new knowledge in the process of your projects, then you've got the opportunity to scope out quite a large claim, depending upon the way in which you construct your, your project. So it's that, it's that tiny project, which, as I describe it to a lot of people I talk to, you could do it in an afternoon. It doesn't need to be your entire reason for being that then means you can get where you need to. I think some of the companies that I've spoken to thought, you know, it becomes costly, risky, but quite onerous. But you're saying this is not necessarily an onerous undertaking. It's just a, it's a methodology. Can you talk me through, in the conversation that you had with Ross Anderson, how did the conversation evolve put it that way? Yeah, I guess really the conversation was around Ross, from my perspective, was very focused. As he mentioned, he's got this patented software, this patented way of making systems be architected, which is seriously clever. It's some very, very clever stuff. So I think that in common with a lot of people, the view that, well, the stuff we did to produce something clever should be claimable, whereas it's actually the reverse. You can actually be doing something quite trivial, quite stupid, in fact, in R&D. And as long as you follow the method, then that's claimable, just because it's actually important. If you haven't followed the method, then you're out. So that then became the core of our conversation. And as Ross put it, he said, so this is really just an extra step as you're going through to develop your prototype. And that's exactly it. It's just this extra bit where you go right at the beginning. Let's identify what are we trying to identify as new. Then before we finish, let's make sure we do an experiment to validate and document what we think is new. It doesn't actually matter whether you've successfully generated new knowledge, by the way. That has to be your purpose. So if the experiment fails still all eligible. And in a scientific position, that's exactly right. You can gain more knowledge from your failures than you do from your successes. Yeah. Yeah, there was a couple of good pauses in the conversation that Ross and I had where he said, so this then means, and, and the, probably the last step, just in answer to your question, the last step was when Ross said, so, so this means that we could claim if we did this experiment, but our claim would be quite small. But of course, the the really nice thing about the program is everything that supports what you're doing. If your experiment requires your product, your whole completed product, and that obviously depends on how you construct the experiment, then the creation of your product then becomes a supporting activity. And supporting activities are just as well funded, are just as well rewarded as core activities. To your earlier point in terms of terminology, I think one of the problems is the word core, because people go, well, core's got to be core to the core of my business. No, it can be just something out on the side involving paperclips. And so long as it meets the requirements, then you can build your own claim around that. So, Marty Galvin, can I ask you then, are you surprised with the amount of heat that's been generated in this whole R&D program and the campaign among software companies who would genuinely feel aggrieved? And if it is just miscommunications, is this your start of a program to address that? I'm a big fan of the R&D tax incentive. And having used it myself in my own software companies, I really like the way that it gets you to think. I think that the problem, from the point of view of someone who's run a software company, the problem is that your initial response is, we don't do things in you know, white lab coat ways. We don't do things with you know, experiments. We don't need to. We should just recognise for our innovation. But if you move on from that and recognise, well, we don't have a general purpose innovation program or we don't have a general purpose program to support innovation in Australia. We have one that supports R&D. Now, if you can change your company's operation just slightly so that it does R&D, then it turns out that actually produces some pretty handy benefits in terms of 
greater margins, greater competitiveness, greater value. And you can then also take advantage of the government's program. Well, then it probably makes sense to do that rather than criticise the program. Okay, so let me move to Ross Anderson from Avado. Now, having had this discussion with Marty and you know, being given this kind of new methodology, are you comforted by that or provided with enough comfort that you believe that it's no longer too costly to risk for a business like yours? I think the concept of the notion of inserting this research step right at the very start of a new project, I suppose it to a certain extent it comes from where you work from. As a professional engineer, normally I nearly always all of our innovations have come from a communication or a conversation with a customer or a client or a regulator who has said, we need to be able to do X. And nobody's done this before. And Marty's process is to then take that question and say, we could approach how to solve this question with a first, second, third approaches. These are the different ways we could look at this. That then becomes the basis of your R&D. The fact that you then have to write a whole heap of software to demonstrate that it does or doesn't work is a different approach. And yes, using that sort of methodology, I could see that if we had a new innovation that we were looking to roll into the business for whatever reason, we could definitely look at that. But the other side of it, of course, with a lot of businesses, especially with ours, is that while we could add lots of different innovations into the business, there also needs to be a business case on the other side because we need a customer to pay for it. So there's one thing to have innovation. It's another thing to have innovation that is commercial. And that's, I think, another aspect of this entire R&D exercise is Yes, you can have R&D, but the R&D has got to be producing something that has got a commercial viability. And I believe that's an important aspect of it. We've always approached it from that perspective, that we don't undertake a new major piece of work, no matter how smart and clever it might be, if we don't have a commercial outcome. Because at the end of the day, it's got to improve the business's competitive edge. All right, Marty, I'll just go to you. I think one of the issues that Ross had brought up was that, I mean, his own R&D consultant had raised flags and said that they were going to have to have another look at the work that they were doing. Those R&D tax incentive consultants would presumably, I would think, be in constant contact with those industry, with the ATO, with anyone else who can shed some light on this program. So how's the message get out to those organisations to ensure that these companies can make legitimate claims? Look, it's difficult. And it's from my perspective, it's difficult for one reason. And that is that generally you talk to someone with the word tax in their title at the end of the year. So we're doing my R&D tax incentive. So I'll do that with my, when I do my tax. And of course, that's completely wrong. As Ross has identified, you need to have this view, you have a business case for, for doing something and you need to be thinking about your R&D at that point. And so you need to be ahead of the game in terms of planning your R&D. And this goes very much to the sort of messages that Oz Industry are putting out there in, around documentation. Because if you talk to your tax consultant at the end of the year and they go, well, what R&D have you done? Firstly, that assumes you know what that is. <laughs> and secondly, it assumes you've documented it. Whereas if somebody's talking to you at the beginning of the year and saying, so what are you thinking of doing this year? Well, could we do an experiment around that? And so that's more the kind of approach that I like to be taking with people and that then is very little to do with tax and everything to do with, well, let's think about how you're going to, to run your business. I was talking to an engineering company the other day 
who's got about 60 engineers, and they've not been claiming on the program. They've worked out that a very large amount of their costs they can actually make into this using this methodology. I would go to the step that most of your well-organized companies will be using a methodology, be it for software, be ISO 9000, whatever it is. Actually, the thing that to me would be the really powerful driver on this is if your management team builds, even if it's just a question around R&D, into their innovation, development, software methodology at a very, very early step. When you're scoping out, I mean, typically in software, as we know, the first thing you do is you write some sort of functional specification or scope or view or vision or whatever they want to call it. To look at that and say, what in here is a new thing? What in this is something we haven't done? What is something we need to learn about? What is something we need to research? Posing those sort of questions really into the methodology at step one is going to initiate people thinking about it. Because my experience is if people are encouraged to think about something, they will inevitably do it. All right, look, I'm going to start to wrap up in just a moment. So Ross Anderson from Avato and Marty Galvin from R&D Certainty. I wanted to close actually with a question for Marty. Well, you can both have a go at it if you like. For this conversation about the R&D tax incentive, it sort of comes at a time when we don't know whether, you know, what form it's going to take. I say that because it, it simply seems that the RDTI was designed in a different time. 2020 is a, is a whole different era. Is that a, a fair statement? Are you expecting major changes to this scheme? What's the government going to do here in the October budget? Crystal ball. I'm not expecting major changes to the scheme. And the reason I'm not expecting major changes is because all of the development countries in the world have programs to support R&D. As, as I mentioned before, this has been found to be extremely beneficial to economies. I think that we have an interesting situation in Australia because since 2008, our actual level of business R&D has been going down while the cost of the program has been going up. And so that's been the problem that people have need to correct. Now, on the one hand, you clearly want to reduce the cost of the program, but on the other hand, you clearly want to increase the amount of business R&D being done. And that's where this conversation becomes really valuable from my perspective. To the extent that we can help more R&D to be done, which then produces the economic benefit, so the risks of detrimental changes to the program go away, and then there's, in fact, more risk on the upside. Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens to that business expenditure on R&D in the 2020 period forward, whether uh, companies suddenly are finding, oh, my God, we really do have to get a move on to things. Yeah. To either stay in the race or to, uh, to get in the race as the opportunities present themselves. Marty Galvin and Ross Anderson, thank you very much for coming on the Commercial Disco. Thanks for uh, bearing your experiences, Ross Anderson. And Marty, thanks for your uh, learned counsel on the way this works. Uh, this Thank you. Thanks, Jack. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.